All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to the GT Power Hour. Third time's the charm. Well, yeah, we're, we're rolling along. For anyone that was concerned that we wouldn't be back, here we are. First of all, want to say happy holidays to everybody. This will be our last show of the year. We're going to end 2019 with a bang, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But also, we'd like to start by saying thank you to all of the early adopters of our efforts here and who've been listening to the podcast. We've been receiving some great feedback, so keep on sending it in. We've had some requests for more balance on the issues and to bring more interviews in, and that's all great. You've been heard on that, and look forward in 2020. Where we are in 2019, I think back to our last episode where we were thinking, what, what, what could be the big things that could happen before the end of the year? And we said we could get a Moper order and we could get a new CEO PJM. Uh, and since our last podcast, we've had both, so we've got a lot to talk about we've today. We've got a lot to talk about today, yeah. So, Glenn... Uh, Good morning. Welcome. It's great to see you again. There you go. Um, uh, it's a little cold this morning, but we all made it here. Uh, how, how are you feeling about PJM's markets over the past month? <laughs> well, I mean, they've been redefined in, in some very important respects. And redefined is probably maybe a little mischaracterization, maybe reestablished. But we have, like I said, we have a new CEO, PJM, coming in and looking forward to meeting Manu and spending some time with him and uh, hearing his vision for the organization. We also have a order from FERC on the minimum offer price rule and how they're going to treat state subsidies. That's been a long time coming, quite frankly. I mean, this has been a three four-year debate at FERC and at PJM, and I think we have some some clear direction from FERC, and it's obviously, you know, kicked up a little bit of a dust storm. If nothing else, I think the last couple weeks have really reset things as we look forward to 2020, and what sure is to be a very robust year at not only PJM, but at FERC and at the States as we think about this new world we're about to enter into. Let's just jump right in, Glenn. You mentioned PJM's new president. I I may be butchering this pronunciation because I haven't met him yet, but I believe it's Matt. Manu Astana, who comes to us from Texas. Yep, direct energy, yes. Mm-hmm. And has been involved in several positions down there. What have you heard? Anything? Yeah, not much. I mean, quite frankly, I, I think that it's, a, it's an interesting hire. I don't think anybody really saw Manu's name as being on, on a list. There certainly weren't a lot of rumors circulating about him being a front runner or anything else like that. But, you know, look at his background on paper. He clearly has a strong depth in the energy industry. He's been in a lot of different roles in the energy industry. He's also comes from direct energy running the home business where he has a little bit of a consumer focus and consumer bent. I shouldn't say a little bit, quite a bit. That was the, the focus of that line of business. So it's an interesting hire. For the folks who, who I've run into who have met him, they have very positive things to say. I think my general sense is the mood is optimistic. And I think everybody knows and appreciates that it's a tough job he's walking into. There's a lot of challenges, both internal and external, that will be facing the new CEO very quickly. And I think a lot of folks look forward to working with 
him to address the many challenges. I don't think there's anybody out there who wouldn't say there's a lot of challenges that mm-hmm. need to be addressed, and under new leadership, look forward to addressing them. Uh, according to PJM's press release, uh, he did his undergraduate work at the University of Pennsylvania, so he at least has some familiarity with, with Philadelphia. I'm not sure how long he was here other than for schoolwork, but he knows the area. Yeah, he's going to know where to find the cheesesteaks, <laughs> so nothing else. Very true, very true. I, I will say from the PJM stakeholder perspective, it's been interesting because the announcement was made what, back in November at this point, right. but Manu is not actually starting. Effectively, it's supposed to be January 1st, but he won't be in the office until January 6th. He's spending most of the first month doing Internal, staff meetings, yeah. and so any any real introduction to stakeholders isn't going to occur until the MRC meeting in late January. So it'll be several months since it was announced, and he's going to be introduced to the membership. Do you find that interesting? I mean, obviously the membership's dying to meet him, right? You know, and hear his perspective and thoughts. You know, way back when, when I walked into the PUC, you know, in Pennsylvania as chairman, it was an agency that I was familiar with, but didn't necessarily know. And my first priority was to meet the internal organization. You know, I was getting a lot of invitations to go literally all over the world at that point, but I was more interested in meeting the folks in the Secretary's Bureau and the Law Bureau and the the Office of Special Assistance, you know, the various bureaus, because I realized if you're going to be an effective leader of an organization, you have to have the building behind you and you have to have the building part of your team. And I kind of respect that he's focused internally, at least initially, but I suspect he'll have a strategy for engaging with the broader community. And that's important. He has to get a good grasp on what's happening in that building and with the operations, and then he'll move forward. Things to look for that could be interesting. Who knows what he's going to do? Will he want to bring his own executive team in? Will he try to work with what's existing there in the organization? There's certainly a lot of talent in that organization. I think he'll know and recognize that immediately. But CEOs sometimes like to bring in their own folks and their own team. And we've already seen Vince Dwayne, the general counsel, departed. Denise Foster, the head of uh, external affairs, departed. Susan Doherty, who was the CFO. Um, Obviously, Andy, the the PJM. So there's been a lot of sort of senior level experience that's already left the organization. Mm-hmm. It'll be interesting to see who sticks around, who is replaced, and you know what kind of combination of internal, external folks he, he taps to be his team moving forward. You have some more institutional knowledge on this than I do. I only have come into it for a few, the past few years, but my understanding is that a lot of the quote-unquote Andy's folks, you know, people that Andy, that were Andy Ott's people, have pretty much gone on from here at this point, and that there, there's mostly who's left are the people who have been here for quite some time. We got like Mike Bryson, uh, who's been doing this for a while. Stu Wrestler, right? Stu, do you believe? Nora, think, yeah. Right. Do, do you believe that any of the folks that have gone away are, are coming back? Is there any potential for any of those folks to come back? I'd be surprised, quite honestly. Um, but, I mean, I look at, like, when Terry Boston came in, and he, he really didn't make a lot of changes, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, with the with the personnel and the executive team. And what, I mean, there was some reshifting, but for the most part, no. Um you know, the, the most recent reshif- reshuffling is a lot of it's been done by the board. If you remember when they announced Andy's departure, they yeah. reshuffled some responsibilities internally. Um, I don't know how that dynamic is going to play out, right? The new CEO versus the board and who's making some of those organizational decisions. It's only something to watch, mm-hmm. particularly if something happens between now and when the new CEO takes over. But it's it's certainly a reset on a lot of respects. I was just going to say, it is very much a reset. This is yeah. someone who is coming in that I don't feel like a lot of PJM stakeholders have much engagement with, so right. he'll have a clean slate. He'll have a clean slate, exactly. Yeah, yeah so. absolutely. What do you think about Sue Riley, the, uh, who was the independent board member? and then right. the 
interim CEO and is now going back to being a board member. Board member. Yeah, yeah, no, and hats off to Sue for taking the mantle for a few months there. It's never easy being an interim CEO, right, of yeah. anything, yeah. especially under the circumstances you know that arose in PJM. So I think Sue will go back and be a terrific board member, like she's always been. Sue's always been a very strong voice for competitive markets. She understands. The value of markets, and that's that's a good thing. I mean, I guess it would be my hope that the board gives the new CEO some leeway, you know, in terms of how they've tapped him to do his job, they've given him a mission to do his job. Now let him go do it. Yeah. Right. That might be tricky for a former CEO sitting on the board who's maybe had more visibility into some of those issues than other board members oh, sitting as CEO. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting because I sort of thought from. And Sue's been very active in the stakeholder process. I was getting the impression that the experience that she got from these last couple of months on the inside of PJM and engaging with the staff, I was wondering if that was going to be very helpful for the board and give them a certain amount of empathy for what's going on or a certain more insight than they had had previously. Because it seems like she's really learned a lot from this that she's planning on taking back to um, the board discussions. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's, it certainly could. And I mean, there's a, lots of examples in the corporate world of CEOs that go to the board before they retire. So yeah, that's not unusual. All right. So uh, moving on, let's talk about the other big elephant in the room here, Glenn. Uh, we just got. It's after- always circus animals, right? It's always circus animals. I, I've, got, I've got certain imagery going through my mind at all times. This might say more about me than anything else. But we've got the long-awaited Moper order came down. It's been how long now? Several like years, four. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this I mean, this proceeding started, this one technically started in 2016, okay. but the discussions have been occurring long before this. This actually started in 2016 when Calpine and a few other generators filed a complaint basically saying, hey, listen, FERC, the wholesale power market rates are not just unreasonable because they're being skewed by out-of-market subsidies Mm -hmm. to certain resources Mm -hmm. that are causing the rates to be unjust and reasonable Mm -hmm. for all the resources that don't depend on subsidies Mm -hmm. to to get them going. So yeah, it's been a long time coming, that's for sure. And there were a lot of fireworks, obviously, at last Thursday's open meeting. You were there, right? I watched it on the internet and then I actually went down uh, later in the day uh, to the first Christmas party. So (laughs) I I was in the building eventually, but just with the train schedule timing, it worked out better to to do it that way. You know, maybe let's start at a high level and work our way down. Well, so let, high level, this has been years in the making. There yes. have been several orders involved here. Is this the end? Have we? No, no. Okay. It's nowhere near the end. Okay. All right. So um, we're not even done. We're not even done, but this was a very, very, very important step in the process. Okay. okay. FERC has laid down certain stakes in the ground via this order, and they have said, okay, here's how it's going to work in our sandbox, mm-hmm. so to speak. Mm-hmm. It was a split commission, 2-1. There was only three commissioners right now. Which is uh, what, what we expected. Right? Yeah, yeah. This is, this is what we predicted right. on the last exactly. episode, Absolutely. a 2-1 vote with uh, Commissioner Glick dissenting. Probably what was maybe a little bit unpredictable was the uh, the vigor of the dissent and mm-hmm. some of the rhetoric around the dissent. I mean, obviously, Commissioner Glick has very strong feelings about this. He has a view of this order that we can get into that I don't necessarily agree with mm-hmm. uh, or see eye to eye with. I mean, I thought he raised some really good points in some respects, but in other respects, I think he's probably overblowing some of the the impact this is likely to have, particularly on clean energy development. I think there's a path forward here for clean energy and renewables 
Um, it might be a different path, but there's a path forward here that he doesn't want to seem to recognize. But Chairman Chatterjee, Commissioner McNamee, and the FERC order, I think, are very strong statements about their views on competitive markets and competitive capacity markets in particular. They made it abundantly clear that they believe competitive capacity markets have delivered value. They made it abundantly clear that FERC, as the regulator of those competitive wholesale capacity markets, has jurisdiction. And they made it very clear that they're going to do what it takes in their mind to protect the integrity of those competitive capacity markets. So from that respect, I think it's a very strong order and a very strong statement. How it gets implemented, there's a lot of implementation challenges associated with this. But like I said, at a high level, I think the way to look at this is FERC putting some stakes in the ground, FERC saying, here's how the rules are going to operate while we're in charge of these markets. The day it came out was PJM's MRC meeting, so those of us in the stakeholder process were otherwise engaged and, and distracted from Yeah, discussing. I'm sure there were a lot of people watching things there, on their phones and, and stuff, yeah. With my predilection to scan Twitter every once in a while, I was keeping up to date on sort of the, the landscape there, and it was just a, a landslide, I felt, of concern over this going in. If I'm just picking a few of the comments of the folks that I see on there, Jesse Jenkins mentioned, I predict this order is the beginning of the end for PJM's capacity market. States are not going to change their commitment to expand clean energy, nor will they be okay paying twice for capacity. States will likely depart and the market will unravel. Ari Pesco put together a non-exhaustive list of the most arbitrary, capricious, and outrageous (laughs) determinations in the order. Uh, He mentions 12 in there. There was some mentions about if we had a federal carbon price, then a mixture of state-based regulations and subsidies wouldn't be messing up regional energy markets. We've had some other folks just kind of go into the detail on this. There's a lot of concern, I think, on where this came down, none of which correct me if I'm wrong, was unexpected. We anticipated that no matter what the order would be, there would be people on one side or the other unhappy with how it went down. Is that, is that, is that fair? Yeah, I think what's probably been the most disappointing aspect of it is most of the, at least in my mind, most of the mainstream coverage of it has been, this is Trump's mm-hmm. attempt to pump up coal resources mm-hmm. and kill renewable. I don't see the order that way. One of the hardest hit entities as part of this order is a coal plant in Ohio that's 65 years old that got a subsidy. It's going to affect that plant. That 65-year-old subsidized coal plant in Ohio is probably going to have the most challenges implementing this order, certainly than any sitting renewables on the ground right now. So I I think it it really, it was force-fed into that narrative a little bit. Is it going to require some rethinking? Yes, absolutely. Is it going to require folks to maybe consider different ways to move forward to accomplish their clean energy agenda? In my mind, I hope so. I think that would be a much more productive way to think about this thing going forward rather than taking it to court or taking it to court or whatever. I mean, suing, who, who knows what other things folks are contemplating from a legal strategy. But if there is a desire to advance clean energy, and some of what's happening in the market on, on clean energy is terrific, right? The cost of renewables is coming down. More and more people are voluntarily getting into renewable arrangements. No day goes by where I don't see you know either a new company or a new business or a new municipality signing up for a 100% renewable option or 100% green option or 100% clean, whatever. I mean, that's the type 
type of progress that is terrific, mm-hmm. right? Pennsylvania has reduced its carbon emissions 40% in the last 15 years, and it's done so preserving the benefits of markets. There's ways to accomplish a clean energy future. There's ways to reduce carbon and emissions and preserve the benefits of the markets. I'd much rather see the conversation pivot in that regard. And I think FERC has provided an opportunity for that conversation to occur as a result of that world. And I know, you know, probably folks are going to hear me saying this and throw me as, you know, oh, that's just Glenn defending coal again, you know, or gas again or whatever. You know, I've been accused of defending everybody. But the point is that FERC has basically said, if you believe the path forward to a clean energy future is by picking the resources in the wholesale market and subsidizing subsidizing the heck out of them to make them economic that's not something they're going to stand for. Mm -hmm. But if there's other ways to increase the demand for this stuff, to improve the technology, to address the environmental attributes, right, to regulate the pollutant. We've talked about this on prior episodes. Nothing prohibits states from regulating the pollutant itself Mm -hmm. that we're concerned about. There's ways to do this stuff. And if all those ways fail, you can re-regulate. It's going to be brutally expensive to do so, and I don't think folks will want to do that, but yes, that's an option. So there's a lot of options on the table here. I think FERC has just narrowed one of the options that seem to be getting the most steam, but unfortunately, it was getting a lot of steam at the expense of the market that folks are depending on to keep the lights on and prices low. There have been improvements in in emissions in states. Uh, You mentioned Pennsylvania. There's obviously, and I would be remiss uh, for all the folks who have given us feedback and saying there's still there's still plenty of room to go. Absolutely, uh, they, there's lots more that could go. Do you not agree, though, that there that there this does provide some validation for concerns, rumblings that the capacity overhang in in PJM is getting worse and is and is and is getting untenable? Do you? Do you think that's fair? 15 years ago, we were trying to you know, keep, put capacity markets in place. We thought the price would clear around the cost of new entry. It's been consistently lower than that. We also thought it would clear around the IRM. We have reserve margins pushing much higher than IRM. Right. Right? Installed reserve margin, folks. Sorry for getting a little technical there. So if you're looking for reliability at, at least cost, which is what the capacity market is designed to do, it's done that well. Has it done it too well? I think that's the argument that we're hearing out there is that the installed reserve margin, which is essentially here's the amount that we think that we need to ensure reliability, the right. amount of reliability that we think is comfortable, where it was, what, 18%, I think, or 16, 16 point something right, percent, right. you know, and we're well over that in right. PJM. So there's this argument that, hey, this is just resources collecting capacity rents and not having to be held to any sort of standard because there's so much extra capacity in PJM that they're just collecting well, free money. No, that- no. Well, first of all, they're held to very high standards mm-hmm. right through capacity performance. That's uh, fair, you know, true. I mean, they're, they're held to very high standards. And we've had, you know, this year we had more capacity performance events than ever, right? And, mm-hmm. and we'll find out if there's fines to be levied there mm-hmm. and everything else like that. So they are held to high standards. There's also, you know, a growing trend for folks being energy-only resources in this market, okay? And that's fine, right? You know, it's it's good to have folks that want to stick around to provide energy when those they feel they can do so economically or they're needed, but are not comfortable with those obligations associated with capacity performance. And so they don't want to take on the capacity obligation, but they do want to participate in the energy and ancillary service markets. Great, okay? That's also leading to higher reserve margins. The capacity markets are a constant challenge. I mean, there's no doubt about it. If you think about what we've been discussing in PJM for the last 20 years, it's 
being capacity markets. In fact, I often joke when I got on the commission, I was there about six months, and this was back in 2001. I put a list together of the things I want to accomplish while I was in office. I think three on the list was fix PJM's capacity markets. You know, and that was like I said in 2000, <laughs> in 2001. It's still on your list. Yeah, yeah. So, so, but it's like you got to always look at the alternatives, and the alternatives were. I mean, I look back at what people were paying under regulation for capacity, and it was a lot more than 150 bucks than right. what we're paying right now. The competitive capacity markets have delivered reliability at a really low cost. I think where they've been challenged is some states and some legislators and maybe some commissions to a certain extent haven't necessarily been comfortable with the result that the capacity market produced. It's a competitive market. What does that mean? Some plants succeed in a competitive market, but others fail. You know, when folks are concerned that a nuclear power plant in Illinois is not going to clear an auction or doesn't clear an auction, is going to close, the state steps in and provides what the capacity market does not. And that's been where the concern is. If I have a new technology, okay, I want to put it in the grid. It's not economic right now. I can't play in that market, so I have to find some way else to make myself economic. And that's where it's broken down a little bit because you still have your capacity market mechanism that is the mechanism for reliability but when extra revenue comes in to change the economics of of certain resources that don't fit in that paradigm it undermines the paradigm to begin with this is when folks start screaming well what about all the subsidies to nuclear and coal and gas and whatever you know everybody's subsidy i get that a lot of the subsidies we have seen are particularly targeted at this capacity market look at what ohio did and what illinois did and even to a certain extent what new jersey did although in my new jersey in my mind those plants were always economic and they never showed any sense of not clearing but in ohio you act in illinois you actually had plants who did not clear the capacity auction those subsidies were designed so they become uneconomic when the market has told them that they're not economic so that's where the challenges come in for capacity markets big picture part of the issue with competitive markets in general right is it's hard to plan Mm -hmm. it's hard to plan ahead because you're not quite certain particularly on on a very localized level what the future is going to hold. That's the difference between a competitive market and an integrated resource plan. Right, right, right. The capacity market seems to be sort of a a splitting of that and trying to create at least some ability to plan a few years ahead of time. And of course, there's just been a lot of complaints about this. Texas doesn't have one. Going back to what Jesse Jenkins said, who has experience with the Texas market and is predicting this idea that the capacity market is going... You know, this is the beginning of the end. Do you see anything like that? Do you, do you agree with that? No, I don't. Okay. Um, I, I think capacity markets are, are here to stay. I, I think a lot of the chest thumping about leaving the PJM capacity markets is, is exactly that. Will some states... Look at the alternative, sure. They absolutely will. There's going to be a price to pay. I look at, I mean, I'll just take one obvious example is like PJM's capacity markets, you know, generally clear in the 150 range. They can be higher or lower some years. You know, Virginia. For uh, the RTOY. For, for right. RTOY, but even most zones. I mean, PSA, there's some zones that clear some a little zones higher. Are different, yeah. yeah, but I mean, in general, I, if you look at the levelized price capacity in PJM, I'm guessing like 150. Yeah. You know, um, and that's a guess. That number's probably out there in a market monitor report somewhere. I'm sure it is. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it's got it somewhere. But like, all right, Appalachian Power Company in Virginia, they did go that far, our fixed resource requirement. They, in essence, said we are removing ourselves from the capacity market and doing ourselves on our own. They published their capacity rates. They found them FERC every year. Last year was $400, mm-hmm. okay? $150 versus $400. Sure. Multiplied by the utility, you're going to pay a price to leave that market. 
Will some states be willing to pay that price? Maybe. Maybe. Will others? No, I don't think they will. FERC mentioned in their order that Maybe they, go the they're, they're not worried about uh, double payment of capacity. That, well, that's the, part of the cost of making your, your choice. Right. That's a, Well, I mean, if you if you like to go fixed resource requirement, leave the capacity market, you're only paying once, okay? okay? You know, I think what some folks are concerned about is if you subsidize and stay in the capacity market, mm-hmm. you run the risk of that resource not clearing the market, in which case you paid for the subsidy, right. but you also paid for the additional capacity mm-hmm. to meet your reliability mm-hmm. needs. So, you know, there, there's that. But I mean, we'll, we'll see. I think a lot of folks need to really read and digest this order and actually get into what it actually means because as we were talking earlier there there are exceptions right there are you know way there are paths forward you know for whether it's renewables or demand response or new gas or well, there's, uh, path for, there's paths forward for everything yes I mean, the unit specific creates a path forward for whatever your unit right is, right it, it right. seems like you there's an option if you can prove that your your floor Cost. price, your, yeah, your, your price should be different from what the estimated technology type number is. You, there's a pathway for you to go and prove that out. It right. just takes some work. Right. It takes some work, and there are so going to be some projects that their costs are above market, right? You know, maybe it's time for those projects to get better technology, you know, or what have you, for the technology to improve. And, and there's always the bilateral market. If you can find a willing buyer for what you're selling, mm-hmm. knock yourself out, yeah. right? They get that deal done, and we see that, that happening all the time. City of Philadelphia signed up for a solar farm in, in Adams County, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Stuff like that is happening all the time right now, and who knows what the price is. But if willing buyer and willing seller get together and can agree on it, and with more and more buyers being motivated to buy renewable energy products or clean products, there's a path forward for these type of technologies. It just may not be the easiest one. The one to date has been to go to the state and get money. It's a little bit harder to go that route than it used to be, but there's plenty of other paths forward to get folks to the the clean energy economy they want. The coal and nuclear plants that are receiving subsidies in PJM will be probably impacted uh, the most by this. So I really don't see this as necessarily coal winning, certainly not subsidized coal winning. And I don't think this is necessarily a win for gas because like you said, all all gas units still have to go through that unit specific review process. So, you know, basically everybody has to prove they're competitive before they can participate in the auction. So I think the biggest, I mean, there are a couple challenges. One, PJM and the IMM are going to have to figure out the workload associated with this. There's going to be a lot more that they have to do. Which has been very interesting recently. There's been a lot of discussions about the territorial lines between. Well, yeah, and like we talked earlier, you got a new CEO coming in. But cooperation and collaboration between those two entities, I think, is going to be particularly important. Because, I mean, we got to get some of these auctions going back. Yeah, that's the other thing I'll comment on, the auction timeline. We still won't know for three more months. Yeah, PJM was given 90 days to file a compliance filing. Part of that, they have to put their auction timeline in. Yeah, and maybe they can even do it faster than 90 days. That would be great if they could get it in faster. Should they try? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and they should try. At some point, we got to get back in the process of having auction, but I guess what I'm saying is there's going to be a little bit more paperwork required with running auctions, more decisions. You know, the IMM and PJM, I think, are going to collectively have to step up their game Mm -hmm. to implement this order. I think they will be I think the other thing too, just you know, looking forward a little bit, there's going to be a lot more process that's associated with this. I think that's going to require you know stakeholder input at some point. You know, mm-hmm. so uh, I think there's going to be a lot of conversations, really critical implementation conversations that are going to occur at PJM. 
I think from the FERC level, I mean, rehearing requests will come flying in in 30 days. I suspect you'll see a lot of rehearing yeah. requests. A whole yeah. variety of topics. A whole variety of topics. There's there's enough in here for everybody to have concerns about something. We don't uh, expect any of them are going to get accepted, correct? I mean, if I had to guess, FERC will be real reluctant to reopen this thing. Yeah. <laughs> but they can sit on rehearing requests, too. We may see a new commissioner. Commissioner Danley's been nominated. Doesn't look like he's going to get through this. Well, we're already on December 23rd. He's not getting through this year, but who knows when he comes in. There's an election next yeah, year. That could change the process is obviously the impe- sort of- Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, there's a lot of process, you know, in D.C. But, yeah, I- I'd be surprised if they open this up in rehearing. I mean, maybe they could get clarification, you know, would agree to clarify a few points. But the FERC process will continue. I and mean, if nothing else, they're going to have a compliance filing sitting in their lap in less than, than 90 days. So there's going to be a, a robust FERC process. PJM, I, like I said, I think there's going to be a lot of implementation issues that stakeholders have to sort through. And then there's also the state-level conversations. What are they going to do? How are they going to respond? I would think it would be a mistake to respond at the state level with a... You know, we're out. I don't think that's the appropriate response. I think states really need to sit down in a really heartful, thoughtful conversations about what they want their path forward and just how comfortable they are, you know, with consumers paying certain levels for electricity and think of maybe more creative and different approaches to pursuing their clean energy agenda. Because in my mind, the best path forward for whether you're Illinois, New Jersey, Maryland, Pennsylvania, Virginia, your better path forward is to stay in these markets, capture that value of markets for your consumers, but try to find market-consistent policy means to achieve your environmental and renewable objectives. There's ways to do that out there. Hopefully that's the conversations that occur in the state capitals. We'll see. Do you think we're, are we going to have a, was 22-23 BRA or? Well, we have to at some yeah. point when, I mean. Will, will they be back to back? Well, yeah, I mean, this would be a great question to ask PG. If I had to guess. <laughs> I'm sure it's going to be asked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I had to guess um, towards maybe the third, fourth quarter of 2020, probably if all the stars line up and, you know, PJM really puts the pedal to the metal, they could get one done late summer, early fall, maybe. Okay. Uh, but, I mean, there's just certain, they, you they'll know. Update the load forecast. There's yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Have and to. people have to come in and ask for unit specific exemptions. Right, they're gonna, I mean, right. they're going to have to implement all right. this stuff. So there's no shortage of things that they're going to have to do just administratively to get this done. And then I think I remember hearing sometime that they need at least a three or four month gap between the auctions. So clearly the 2020, May 2020 auction is not going to happen right. in May of 2020 because we haven't had the 2019 auction right. yet. So we'll do the 2019 auction, do the 2020. I think it's important for PJM to get back on the cycle though. I think that's really, really important. So there's a lot more to come. I'm sure we'll discuss it more. Let's just put a pin in and we'll, we'll come back. Yeah, you? absolutely. Yeah. This won't be the last conversation I'm we have sure. on this subject for sure. Well, here we are at the end of the year. It's time to talk about what we expect for 2020. Obviously, Moper, I think, is one thing. But aside from that, knowing that, what else are you seeing? At a very high level, obviously, 2020 presidential election year. We'll see who the Democrats pick to be their candidate. But like I've said on past podcasts, I can't imagine that climate is not going to be a priority for anybody on that Democrat list. The president's <laughs> I mean, I even saw he was uh, he was picking on windmills again, <laughs> uh, killing all the bald eagles. It's sure to be a topic of conversation. So that's not to say we're going to see a lot of federal action on it, but I think it'll get a lot of dialogue, which correspondingly put a little bit more pressure on the states to maybe do something. But it's an election year in most states in PJM as well. And generally, state legislators don't tackle tough issues in an election year. How this debate plays out that we were just talking about the Moper debate, I think is going to be probably the issue for the first six months for the year. I can see Illinois... 
Illinois, New Jersey, and Ohio will probably be the hottest conversations. I think Maryland, a not too distant second. <laughs> you know, I think they're right up there. They're like 1A and 1B. I think we'll see robust conversations in all those jurisdictions. The tough thing about it is this is really complicated stuff, right? And trying to explain, even trying to explain what a MOPR is to, to folks is very challenging. I mean, I think it's going to be hot everywhere, quite frankly. I think it's going to be hot at FERC. I think it's going to be hot at stakeholder body. I think, you know, 2020 is shaping up to be one of those years we look back 30 years from now and saying this was a really important, like, you a know, watershed moment. a watershed moment. Like, yeah. Yeah, and there are a couple of years like that I can point to in PJM. Like 2011 was an important year. 2005 was an important year, you know, when they introduced RPM. Yeah. I mean, I think 2020 will really be a moment, okay. you know, in, in time type thing. So we're looking forward to it. Do we get another commissioner? Do we get first, two more commissioners? I'm not so sure about two. Okay. Commissioner McNamee's term expires in June of 2020, but he can serve to the end of Congress unless his successor has been mm-hmm. appointed. So for at least next year, you got a minimum of three, you know, right. unless somebody leaves before their term expires. You have the possibility of getting Commissioner Danley on there, who's been moved through committee. He's just awaiting a floor vote. A Democrat nominee has been identified. She has not been nominated by the president. I wouldn't, you know, unless that person's paired with McNamee, mm-hmm. a McNamee renomination, or not a McNamee replacement, but I, I would think McNamee gets renominated. Either way, I don't see necessarily the FERC dynamics playing. And they go going back to the sort of this was like McNamee and Chatterjee really taking some strong personal ground on some of these issues right. too. You know, I mean, this was for both of them their first real big statement in this regard. And Chairman Chatterjee, I, I don't know if you saw, was I mean, he was going back and forth with uh, Senator Schumer on this order over the weekend oh, no, on Twitter. Yeah, oh, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Just... Yeah, Schumer called out the order and Chatterjee fired right back. He's been yeah. very protective of his decisions. And oh, yeah. Well, and now he's firmly in the I believe in competitive markets camp, right? Yeah. You know, and I'm going to protect competition camps. So, you know, the extent that he remains chairman, like I said, he's staked out some pretty decent personal ground for him, himself on that. So, yeah, and then like like I said, we talked about the new CEO coming in. What does that do to the P- – yeah, I mean, maybe that's a better question to ask you. I mean, how does that change the stakeholder room with a new tone, a new temperament from the top? I mean, it has to, right? I'll, I'll be intrigued to see what his personality is. Again, you know, he's kind of a clean slate, so I don't think right? anyone has – but what we saw in Andy was uh, very much a, in public a hands-off approach. I mean, generally didn't want to have debates in public. It was a lot of uh, one-off meetings individually behind closed doors and then sort of coming in. And we saw that the, that was something that a lot of stakeholders uh, didn't like. They felt like right. they had been isolated from conversations, that there were things going on that they hadn't been able to be a part of. And we found that there were a lot of people who wanted to be engaged in, in all discussion on all topics. Sue came in and sort of changed that and has been very engaged on a lot of topics. Uh, and, and some people have I've said maybe too engaged for the amount of time that she was intended to be there. So we'll see where Manu comes in and if he remains as engaged. And it probably takes several months to to get into, particularly because some of the topics that I see that are going to be discussed are ones that he's going to have to get up to speed very quickly. Yeah. We've obviously got the FTR market and the reshaping there that is moving in one direction, but I don't think done. We've got fuel security. We just made some decisions on that, but we also, it was, it's very funny. It seemed to me like the perfect season ending narrative arc for a TV show because they said we've ended the stakeholder group, but there was little seeds or little breadcrumbs left for something to come in the future. So we've got another season of 
the uh, of the fuel security TV show to look forward to next year. <laughs> that's great. Um, I think that's that's on the thing, and of course, you know, transmission, yeah. which we don't talk about a lot here, um, but. The competitive transmission, the debate going on there, the different sides who, on a larger level, what this means for incumbent TOs and, and their continued uh, authority over this process. They consistently point to the fact that the whole RTO process is based on the foundation of the TOs having abdicated right. certain amounts. but retaining um, authority for their zones and, and they continue to see all this as uh, sort of aggressions mm-hmm. on their their authority in their zones. So to see how that all plays out, I think that's going to dominate 2020 and it'll be something that Manu, if he wants to get involved, will have to get up to speed very quickly because these are things that have been going on for several years yeah. and there are stakeholders who have pointed out that we've been talking about this for years. Let's get uh, it done. So we don't have a lot of time to right. get everyone else uh, on the same page. So if you have two minutes alone with the new CEO to give him advice, what do you say to him? Oh, that's interesting. I think we've learned that you have to listen. Uh, you have mm-hmm. to listen a lot, and you have to proactively, you know, uh, Sue likes to call it active listening, and I right. agree. You have to proactively point out that I have heard the things that you have yes. said. You just can't say noted, we'll think right. about it. You have to discuss and talk about and reference the points that you have heard. Yeah. Uh, I think that's going to be key going into this year. I think the other side of that is, you know, you've got like a thousand stakeholders. Yeah, it's getting big. Who are all here. You really have to understand each sector's interests on an intrinsic and fundamental level right. to get beyond there's going to be rhetoric that goes on at every meeting and you're going to have to wade through some of that to consistently understand what the underlying interests and goals are because they're going to be trade-offs absolutely going to be trade-offs and you'll have to understand what are their closely held things the things that they appreciate the most that we can agree that we can find common ground on those central issues and then sort of do some trade-offs on the edge pieces. You're going to have to do some horse trading. There's, there's no way to have like a pure, here is the road forward. It's going to require compromise the whole way through. That's kind yeah. of where I would go. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that, and then maybe disagree a little bit at, towards the end. I agree on the active listening part. I yeah. think it's really critical that a new CEO, particularly early, you know, do more listening than talking. But ultimately, at the end of the day, I want somebody who can take in all that input and then run it through the filter of what's best for the market, what is Mm. best for PJM, Mm -hmm. and then make a principled decision, understanding where folks are. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I want to see the policy first and the politics second, if you will. When I say politics, small p, PJM, stakeholder politics. Yeah, that's fair. you know, yes, you need political buy-in for your decisions, but ultimately I want, you know, PJM to be able to look the stakeholders in the eye and say, we heard you, <laughs> this input's been great, here's what we've decided because we believe this is what's the best mm-hmm. position of the market. Mm-hmm. You know, and maybe that's, you we've know. We've tried that though, right? We've tried that, you know, but, I, I mean, like I said, I've always been a firm believer in policy first, politics second. You know what I mean? Fair. You know, and good policy is good politics. Mm-hmm. And if you get the markets right, it may hurt some entities that aren't well positioned in the markets. But yeah. if that's the right call for the markets, at the end of the day, things will move on. And at least people can know and expect that in my last 30 years of a career, I've been on winning sides of arguments and losing sides of mm-hmm. arguments all mm-hmm. along. And, you know, I'll forget what the individual controversy was 25 years ago, yeah. whatever I was fighting about. But I'll 
I'll always remember the process, whether I felt like I was treated fairly and heard. That's what the new CEO needs to embellish. However, markets are not UN compacts. It's not legislative sausage making because there's actually a market at the end of the day that has to function. And if the goal is to produce a product that makes everybody happy but doesn't advance the interests of the markets, I think that's doomed for failure. Well, I think you made a really good point here about having a long track record and having won some and lost some. There are some members of the stakeholder community who are fairly new to it and don't have a win-loss record that's very long. Right. And so a loss, even a small one today, is big. Well, and that's the other sort of challenge that's a little bit different today than it was, say, maybe 15, 20 years ago. These markets are so tight right now. You know what I mean? They used to fight about dollars. They're now fighting about pennies. Right. And that's not an exaggeration. The markets are so tight, and just a little bit of a needle move can change somebody's position in the market very dramatically. Threading that needle, I think that's really where I was getting at. The CEO will have to have the political acumen and social empathy to be able to thread a needle and to know when to move forward to your point about holding the line on policy and when to be listening to folks and understand. And that takes a, they'll have to get yeah. caught up on a lot of things because there's a lot of history there. That's there you go. So, most important so Mono, if you're listening, there's some free <laughs> advice from Glenn and Rory. There you, so. there you go. Most important question, Glenn. What? Do the Eagles make it to the playoffs? And if so, how far do they get to go? They do. They lose in the first round. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, it's not their year. It's not the Steelers' yeah, year either. Year. I mean, it's just not. It's too many injuries. Yeah, it is you tough. Know, you know, thank God they're playing in the NFC East because otherwise. Baltimore is going to be the uh, standard bearer for the East Coast, I'm pretty certain. They, uh, yeah. They've got the best club, it seems, as long as uh, Lamar Jackson makes it through. So how about it? How about we'll it? We'll see. We'll healthy. see. He's an exciting player. So. Okay. Well, well, hey, it's been another rousing time uh, with you, Glenn, as always. For those who have wondered in the past, we try to do these sessions on PJM's No Meeting Days. They have two per month that they kind of randomly select, so our actual distribution schedule can be a little awkward. This was the December No Meeting Days, so we'll hope to have this out in your Christmas break for you. The January ones are very early in the year. We will probably not be able to do the conversation then, so look for it later in the month. But we've got a lot of ideas for next month. Right? Yeah, and keep the feedback coming, please, yeah. by all means. We really, and, and I'm being very sincere in that, we really value that. And we definitely want to make this a conversation yeah. that involves just more than the two of us. I hope we've represented some folks better than before. But if not, feel free to rain fire down. Uh, <laughs> we, we certainly want to hear where we've missed. And yeah, we'll, we'll be back here in January. Glenn, any parting thoughts? Happy holidays, everyone. And, and as always, uh, be excellent to each other. There you go. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of the GT Power Hour. The views expressed on the show represent those of the hosts and not necessarily any GT Power Group client. For more information, please visit www.gtpowergroup.com. That's G-T-P-O-W-E-R-G-R-O-U-P.com. Or send us an email at powerhour at gtpowergroup.com. That's P-O-W-E-R-H-O-U-R at gtpowergroup.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.